A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Happy Halloween, everybody. Today was supposed to be the day that we left the European Union. Come what may, do or die, no matter what. And of course, uh, we haven't. Or have we? Maybe we have actually left and nobody's told us. Boris Johnson pledged that he would rather die in a ditch than ask the European Union for an extension up to Article 50 and the terms under which we left. But let us give thanks for what he has at least achieved in the 101 days since he was made Prime Minister back in July. He actually didn't write a letter to the European Union asking for an extension, so he kept that particular promise. He's got a better deal to leave than anything Theresa May was able to do in her entire time as Prime Minister. He has convinced the hard Brexiteer ERG group in his party to back the deal, and he has finally got Parliament to not only pass his Queen's speech, but to give him his election as well. Now, Jeremy Corbyn, of course, would call him a failure. He would call him a liar. The SNP say he's like a caged vulture that needs to be kept in the cage. The Lib Dems say he's not to be trusted. Well, coming up today, we'll be running the line over the latest news from Westminster, who's in, who's out, as well as what the latest polls are saying. And of course, as usual, we want to hear from you, the people who actually matter. It might be a scary prospect, but just make the call. You voted to leave the European Union. Let's find out exactly where you stand now and precisely what the Brexit party is up to because as I said yesterday I do not think that they have an actual plan that is workable yet. Uh, They're on the front page of the Telegraph this morning talking about how they may not wish to put candidates up against the Tory party but there apparently is a split in the Brexit party and they're going very very quiet at the moment nobody's quite sure what they're doing so I want to hear from all of you because I know many of you uh, are backers of the Brexit party but if you vote for them it may well be in fact a completely wasted vote. Coming up we'll also find out just why the NHS is going to be at the centre of Labour's election policy. Why the Jewish Labour movement won't be campaigning for Jeremy Corbyn this year. I'll give you three guesses. 03444991000. And we'll be getting an update from America with LaDonna Harvey, uh, who is not a million miles away from all those terrible brush fires uh, up around uh, Santa Monica and the northern parts of Los Angeles. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there's all sorts of headlines in the papers this morning. We'll be addressing 
most of them coming up. Of course, there was an awful lot of news yesterday on the Grenfell inquiry. Corbyn on the front page of The Guardian says the Tories don't represent the people, but we do. I don't think that's true whatsoever at all. Uh, Boris and Trump plot NHS sell-off is on the front of the Daily Mirror, which is an absolute pack of lies. And I have to say, I apologise uh, on behalf of my former colleagues from the Daily Mirror, but I think they have actually lost the plot. Jeremy Corbyn uh, is completely wrong, and he knows that he is wrong uh, when he tries to link Donald Trump with the NHS and Boris Johnson. As he said yesterday in Parliament, Boris Johnson basically said, look, we, of course we're negotiating with people in America who make pharmaceuticals because, of course, there are certain companies in America who only basically make one type of pharmaceutical drug for one particular type of injury and for one particular type of disease. And if they're the only people that make it, then they're going to be people who, who we want to talk to and they're going to be people we want to buy the drugs from. It is completely nonsensical and, frankly completely and utterly diabolically kind of two-faced to make out that Donald Trump is in some way going to buy the NHS. You'd have to be very stupid uh, to want to actually believe that. However, there are a lot of very stupid people out there. I want to hear from you about the NHS. And if you work in the NHS, as I know many of you do, or you know people who work in the NHS, we want to get at the truth this morning about what it is that the NHS actually does well, what it is that it does badly. I've often said many times that the NHS is a brilliant organisation run very, very badly, very expensively. It's too big, it's unmanageable and something needs to change. Let's be honest about it. Let us not pretend that the Tories are going to damage it or sell it off. Let's not pretend that only Labour can save the NHS. I mean... Let's face it, if you looked at Private Eye this week, you would see a whole host of times that the NHS has been at the front and centre of Labour campaigning. We can go all the way back to Tony Blair on the 17th of April 1997. There are 14 days to save the NHS. Uh, on the 30th of April 1997, we have only 24 hours to save the NHS. Uh, we have 48 hours to save the NHS in 2011. Uh, John Lister, Director of London Health Emergency, we have six weeks to save the NHS in 2011. 2012, Ed Miliband, we've just got three months to save the NHS. Uh, David Cameron's um, health reform bill came in in February of 2012. Doctors said, we've only got 12 days to save the NHS. Unite General Secretary Len McCluskey, March 2012, we've only got 13 days to save the NHS. Lord Reid at a rally for Scottish Labour on 2014, we've got five days to save the NHS. It just goes on and on and on. And I'm sorry, I'm sick to death of it. Let's talk to somebody who has actually got a bit more sensible attitude to politics and probably to the NHS as well. Uh, William Clouston, who is leader uh, of the Social Democratic Party in this country, a smaller party that we don't hear too much about. We've had him on the show before and he made a lot of sense, so we thought we'd get him back. William, a very good morning to you. Morning, thanks very much for having me Not back. Not at all. Listen, uh, the election is upon us. Um, I suppose I should start by asking you um, how, how fully you will be participating in it, how many candidates you're able to put out. Uh, well, the aim, um, there is a, well, there's a need for honesty in politics, isn't it? So we're not going to say we're going to win the election or anything like well, that. Well, what everybody else is we, saying, you might as yeah. well. Why don't you just say you want to be Prime Minister, no, along with Joe just, Swinson? Uh, people, people, people want a bit of honesty. So <laughs> our, our aim was to uh, get representation in every region in Britain, and right. we, we should do that. We, we're looking at about 20 candidates across okay. the country. But it's very, very targeted. 
Um, and I think it's important, actually, because this is going to be a very, very thoughtful election. It's one of the most important elections we're ever going to have. I think so. And unfortunately, watching parliamentary processes yesterday and watching Prime Minister's questions, clearly Jeremy Corbyn is going to try not to talk about Brexit and he's mm. going to prefer to talk about the NHS. And I just find it incredibly disingenuous when I hear words and phrases like, you know, Trump-style trade deals and, you know, the NHS is going to be sold off by the Tories. As I've just read out, there are in any number of warnings that we've had about saving the NHS for, yeah. for decades from the Labour Party. It's a stock, stock response from Labour. But the, the, the irony, Mike, is actually that the Labour Party partly marketised the NHS under Blair. Yeah, of course they did. I mean, about, you know, about 5 or 6% was, was marketised under Blair. Actually, the Social Democrats, we, we don't agree with that. We don't think the NHS should be marketised, but also we don't think uh, that, um, sh you know, shock headlines are necessary either. Funny thing is, the, the NHS is one of the few areas in British politics where there pretty much is a consensus, and it's a social market consensus. The Conservatives do believe in the NHS. Successive uh, governments have supported it. So the, the, it's, it's actually false to say that this, uh, this, 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 this gap uh, um, exists when it doesn't really. Uh, and, and as I say, New Labour uh, were responsible for introducing marketisation uh, just as much as the Tories have. So, yeah, you'll hear the same sort of approach. Mm. But anything, anything to talk, anything to distract about the, the main political issue, which is Brexit. And um, on that, unfortunately, the Labour Party's position is, even to intelligent people, incomprehensible. Well, it's entirely incomprehensible. Kind of, yeah, you, I mean, also it changes depending on which member of the Labour Party you talk to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely hopeless, and no wonder they don't want to talk about it. Um, but there's quite a lot they don't want to talk about Labour mm. Party. I mean, they won't want to talk about their unappealing mix of, of identity politics, all the grievance stuff. You combine that with the economic Marxism, and you've got a you know, really, really unappealing mix. And I, I have to say, I mean, the Social Democrats, we, we're arguing for you know, on our usual platforms of democracy, a sort of red and blue policy mix, nation state and social market economy, and also for some social solidarity, all those things are very important. But we believe actually this election will be dominated by Brexit. Uh, we're putting forward the platform, we're going to go for the Labour heartlands, we're, we're targeting our um, efforts in very, very strongly Labour health seats like uh, Leeds Central, yeah. outstanding, Jarrow, Tottenham, uh, Cunnan Valley, these places. Um, and, and really what we're there to do is uh, to offer traditional Labour supporters uh, an alternative uh, that they would find um, appealing. Basically, it's the alternative they used to have under people like Callaghan and Shaw. Right. And so you're talking about a sort of traditional left-leaning party rather than the very far-left party that Jeremy Corbyn's in charge of. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, <laughs> less, and less of a centrist kind of left party that Tony Blair ran. Yeah, no, I think our economic programme is to the left of, um, of New Labour. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, it's very... Uh, well, to be honest, stuff. George Osborne was to the left of New Labour. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, yeah, it's very exactly. confusing. Exactly. No, it is quite confusing. There's been a lot of cross-dressing. But, yeah. the, the, no, I think the, the patriotic Labour supporters, traditional Labour supporters, would look at our programme, uh, railway nationalisation, uh, more, more money for the health service, a bit of council house spending. But within a social market uh, um, context... We, you know, the, the, the state and, and the market are not opponents. And the trouble is you've got two parties that for years and years have, have backed one or the other. And it's ended up in, in a mess, frankly. I mean, we haven't been well governed. No, we have not been well governed for quite some time. And yeah. we are in the position that we are in uh, because of bad governance, in my yeah. view. Um, and when you say this is a very important election, I think you're abs absolutely right. But so, so, so the places you've chosen to fight 
are yeah. very much Labour heartlands, yeah? Yeah, they are. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and, and, and the broader picture, again, I think we should be honest about this. Um, and the Brexit Party will work out what they're going to do. But, you know, um, the most important, the, the safest option in this election is to, to have a Johnson majority and get yeah. Brexit done. And that's, just, I mean, we say that as Social Democrats. You know, you, we, we, we're putting our own candidates up and we're fighting, obviously, Conservatives and Labour in those seats. But let's be, let's be sensible. Let's be, look, at, look at the alternative. If, if, if Johnson doesn't get a majority, you won't get Brexit. So you'll have more of this chaos. Yeah. But the and there real, are so the many people... Fight. And what do you make of this, by the way, William? Because there are more and more people now in Parliament. Many of them won't be there, hopefully, when they return from this election. But mm. more and more people in this Parliament whose, whose main kind of principle seems to be just to block Brexit. And we've now got the Lib Dems openly saying, we don't want Brexit to happen. We want to stop Brexit. Now... Well, in, in yeah. sort of days gone by, that would have been such an undemocratic thing to say it's that nobody would yeah, say it. Absolutely appalling. And, and what, what I um, resent is, is the Lib Dems being described as, in some house, moderate or centrist. That's not a centrist position. No. That's not a, I mean, uh, the SDP's programme is centrist if you, if you blend it, because, you know, on the social side and the cultural side, we, we're quite uh, socially conservative. Um, but, but, but there's no way on earth you can describe the Lib Dems' uh, position as... as, as uh, as moderate. No. Or, or no, so, it's extreme. It's extreme. It is an extreme position. There'd be so much... Uh, I mean, you know, the terms used are, 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 are you know, literally being, being degraded. Um, and, and, but, that's, but in this election, Mike, the, 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 I just want to say one thing on the, on the sort of riskier side. Yeah. The, the, the real risk of this election is that Corbyn does something that he did last time and gets some sort of breakthrough. And you end up with uh, some sort of Corbyn SNP uh, type government that would be absolutely a disaster. Yes. So you'd have a, a, a prime minister effectively who hated his own country and yeah. who didn't want to be in any way aligned with the United States of America. He's made that very clear. Yeah. Uh, being supported by a bunch of MPs who actually yeah. are in a place they don't want to be. Yeah, separatists. Yeah. yeah. But the, the, it's it's the economics. The economics. I mean, it, you know, all the social stuff and all the Islington preoccupation mm. are all a problem. But the it's the economics. You know, you, you have a, an avowed Marxist as a Chancellor of the Exchequer in McDonald's. Yeah. And you, you just look at their friends, look at Venezuelan. You know, it starts off, all this stuff starts off with the Brotherhood of Man. Yeah. And it ends up with people having to eat their own pets. Yeah, I know. That, that's the problem with it. It's absolutely and, horrendous. And it is horrendous. And I think the British people will, will, uh, are thoughtful. And overall, I think the result, um, you know, could be a positive one. But we've got to think about it, think about the risks. And the risks... Uh, you know, they're not uh, proportionate. You know, OK, Johnson isn't our cup of tea in many respects. But that's a far safer option overall than... Um, but considering uh, the, the way... Yeah, considering the way that those on the opposite side of the benches call him a liar, he's one of the most honest politicians that's ever sat in Parliament because he's actually done what he said he would do. Now, yeah, you, can, so you, you can... never know what you're going to get. I mean, one of the problems with politics is you never know what you're going to get. You, you, you know, the, the public puts its best foot forward and votes for people... I mean, Heath lied through his teeth uh, in the 1970 election. Uh, you know, you, did, you don't know what you get. But actually, you know, you, you know, we'll wait and see with Johnson. But but it's 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 certainly the the, the less uh, the less risky option, and far less risky option. And Brexit's got to be done. You know, the sooner we put this behind us, the better. I think people people are. I mean, the public in general don't like division. We, we're fed up with it. And uh, you know, people are crying out for a bit of solidarity. I think put Brexit behind us, get it done. 
I think we'll get it and we'll have a better situation in the 2020s. And realistically, William, um, can you disrupt any of the um, sort of the candidates where you're standing? I mean, what sort of a hope I, do you I, have well, for look, that? We've, we, as I say, we've been very careful. We don't want, we, we don't want to harm the Brexit cause, and, and I'll just be honest about that. Right. We don't. So we've been very careful about where we're standing. They are Labour heartlands, and they've got you know, a huge majority. So you've got to be realistic. But you know, places like Leeds, we've got a great team in Leeds. We had a wonderful conference in Leeds recently. Got a good grassroots team, and I'll be up against uh, Hillary Benn there. Okay. And, and well, by good the way, luck the, con- with that. the conference was fantastic. You know, we had Rod Little speak, uh, Brendan O'Neill came along, Ben Cobley. Um, worth having a look on YouTube at the at the speeches, cracking cracking conference. So we'll do what we can. I mean, I, as I say, I'm not going to. I think there is a call for honesty in policy. I'm not going to. You know, I lead a, quite a small party, but we're growing. Uh, memberships are well into the thousands now, and we've got a we've got a program which basically sits on top of the political views of about half the country. Uh, it will take time. It will take time. We'll do our best. Yes, absolutely right. What do you make of Jewish Labour, the organisation behind um, the Jewish side of the Labour Party movement, saying, uh, announcing for the first time that they will not campaign for Jeremy Corbyn? First time in 100 years. Well, good on them. I mean, why should... I mean, you know, I, 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 I sympathise with them. And, I, you know, what do you do? What do you... It should never have happened. And, uh, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of things in politics shouldn't have happened. I mean, Corbyn should not be leader of the Labour Party. Yeah. Not in a million years. No, of course never not. never have happened. Well, half the people in the Labour Party don't think he should be leader no, of the Labour Party. No, I know, I know. And the, the strange thing is, if he did actually win, his government would fall apart because half of the PLP would, would, would break off. So it's nonsense. No, I, I sympathise with Jewish Labour. I do, you know, what, what do you do? You've got to, you've got to fight this stuff. Mm. Absolutely right. William, good luck in the elections. Thank you very much for talking to us. We'll perhaps talk to you again through the course of the campaigns. William Clouston there, leader of the Social Democratic Party in this country, which is pro-Brexit, but also pro uh, the working man and also left-leaning from New Labour's point of view, but right-leaning from the Corbynista point of view. Fascinating party. Uh, We will be talking to them, I'm sure, as we will be talking to every political party throughout the course of the next six weeks or so as we prepare ourselves uh, for the decision. December election because here at Talk Radio we are your election station and we want to take your views and take your calls because the most important people in all of this are you, the actual voters, not the politicians, not the ones who are leaving, not the ones who are remaining, not the ones who are joining, not the ones who are asking for your votes and knocking on your door and promising you things that they can never deliver. We're talking about you, the people. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. I'm delighted to say I'm joined now by Roy Lilly, former NHS Trust Chairman, a man uh, who speaks a lot of sense about the NHS, a man who knows the NHS better than most people do. And, of course, we all know it in some part because of the way that we have had to be dealt with it uh, by, because we've all been to hospital A&Es, we've all been to GP surgeries, we've all had children, more or less, that have had to be taken to hospital in one way, shape or form. You know, we've all had some experience with the NHS, Sometimes great, sometimes not so great. Sometimes brilliant, sometimes life-saving, other times less than uh, good and, and quite frankly, awful. Let's talk to Roy and find out what it's all about. Roy, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Morning. Morning. Now, listen, it's time to talk sense and to talk the truth about the NHS because I got quite irritable yesterday watching Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn having this kind of spat across the dispatch box. It wasn't helpful. It didn't really lead to any greater knowledge. It was simply a kind of exercise in throwing mud at one another, uh, most of which didn't stick and most of which wasn't mud, the mud of truth, as I would like to call it. (laughs) 
I mean, what's it all about? Why, why is it that people can get away with telling so many lies about the NHS? Well, the NHS is complicated, and it, you know, its problems are you know, deep-rooted. And as you've said, it, it, it's sometimes good and it's sometimes bad. Look, here's, here's the, the, the heart of the problem at mm. the moment. Uh, the NHS was born on the 5th of July, 1948. And since 1948 up until 2010, which is a, like, a long time, 60, 70 years, um, the NHS has benefited from uh, an annual uplift in funding of around 4%. Some years it's more, some years it's less, but let's take an average of 4%. Come 2010, we're dealing then with the fallout of the world banking crisis. The government does a handbrake turn on all public expenditure, and the NHS has had more or less since 2010 flatline funding. So that's nearly 10 years of flatline funding. And that's really what's crippled it. That's where the problems have started. That's where we start to miss targets. That's where there are now 40,000 nurse vacancies. That's where there are 100,000 vacancies across the whole of the NHS. That's when the rot set in. Now, it is true that this government will be putting in uh, more money, and it has released some of the trust zone savings in terms of capital to build more stuff. But, of course, that's slow to come through, and it's starting from a very low base. So it, there is plenty of room to argue the toss either side, because Labour can say the NHS is performing badly, it's not met any of its key targets for the last five years, and the government can say, yes, but we're putting more money into it than ever, and that's true as well, but it's from a low base. Mm. So you get this sort of middle ground of where both sides can tell the truth, uh, uh, but it just generates an argument, more, more you know, smoke than light, and the public just turn off, I think. They think, oh, to hell with it. And if, I was interested yesterday when you talked about uh, Boris Johnson at PMQ. Yeah. He couldn't remember how many new hospitals he was supposed to be building. This is one of his key... Uh, well, I mean, one of the things that, that Corbyn attacks him on and has done now two weeks in a row uh, is that it started at 40, then it went to 20, and now it's down to six. And I'm completely uh, befuddled, to be honest, as to what the real <laughs> well, number is, because I didn't, I didn't get back from Boris what the actual number was. No, well, it's, I'll tell you what it is. It, it, ones that are shovel-ready and things are going to start happening and the bulldozers will turn up, there are about six. There are more that are nearly shovel-ready and the capital has been released to build them. And there's another tranche where money has been released to enable the hospitals to go through the planning and building and design and development process, which could take, you know, three or five to five years. You know how the planning process works here. So we could have another government by then. So whether we're going to see those ever done or not, I don't know. But I think we could probably nail on six. Yes, OK. So that's better than none, isn't it? And why oh, doesn't yeah, Jeremy Corbyn... I, I mean, thought Jeremy Corbyn yeah. would get more kudos if he congratulated the Prime Minister on building six more hospitals, but then said, why don't you build another six? You know, rather exactly. than the approach that he's got, which is to basically rubbish everything that Boris Johnson says, and, 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 and then Boris Johnson comes back with, well, you know, let's look at Wales, where the Labour Party's in charge of the NHS, uh, where it's even worse. Well, you see, again, that's not quite true. In Wales, the, the Wales in health and social care are much uh, more closely aligned, and their discharge rates uh, from hospital with, with the frail elderly, which you and I have spoken about a number of times here, which is a problem here, it's much better in Wales. So there's, you know, there's good and bits, good bits and bad bits everywhere. So it, it is, uh, and it is interesting, isn't it? Every time you see Boris Johnson on the telly now, he's got his sleeves rolled up yeah. because he's in a hospital, and the rules are you've got to be bare below the elbow. Right. 
and he's got nurses running around behind him and he's sitting in front of an empty bed saying how much he's going to sort the NHS out. So mm. the NHS is, it will become the backdrop for this election uh, and the battleground on both sides. But that's the problem. I don't want the NHS to be the battleground on both sides because I don't believe the narrative from either side. You know, I don't believe that the Tories want to kill it off. I don't believe they want to sell it off. I don't believe that they want to make it somehow reduced in its capabilities. By the same token, I don't believe that the Labour Party could make it work any better because it is intrinsically, for me, too big, unmanageable and badly run in so many areas. Yes, uh, and it, it, I mean, the, the bit about the too big, you're right. I mean, what, what happened in 2012, the then Secretary of State, Andrew Lansley, a Tory, came in with a, a number of changes to the organisation and how the NHS is run. It, he made a mess of it, and it's, it, 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 we're still recovering from that now. Uh, under the, um, uh, the present uh, uh, Secretary of State, there is a new bill prepared to go through Parliament. It was in the Queen's speech where some of the uh, damage that was done by the Lansley reforms is being unpicked, and we are going back effectively to a regional model, which mm. works very well, because the region is big enough to get traction and small enough to manage properly. So, yeah. you know, we, we're going, we're taking time to go full circle, but again, you know, we have, we've had the Queen's speech, we had the Queen's speech, and now we're having an election. Normally you have an election and then a Queen's speech, so <laughs> who knows what's going to happen. Well, exactly right. I mean, I would assume if the Tories get back in, and if they have a slightly bigger majority, that they will just kind of re enact the last Queen's speech, as it were. They're not going to suddenly come up with a whole new bunch of ideas that they didn't have, you know, two months ago. But what would you do, Roy? Because you seem like a sensible individual. Um, and if you were in, uh, uh, in charge of the NHS, if somebody from the next government rang you up and said, right, here's what we want to do. We want to appoint you uh, to be chair of NHS improvements or something like that. Are there kind of three to five things that you would do immediately? Well, let's have a look. I mean, the first thing I do is actually outside the NHS, because the NHS's problems are made much worse by the fact they can't move frail elderly people through the system. And they yeah. can't do that because social services have had their budgets cut by nearly 50%. They've got no money, so they can't get the care packages organised to get, you know, elderly people home. Yeah. So the first thing I'd do, if there was, if there was any more money around, is, is I would give that money to social care, for care packages, and I would I would ring fence it for care packages. I'd also change the rules so that it's it's possible for the NHS and social services to work closer together. Because at the moment the NHS is run by you know the DH, the Department of Health, and social care. It says, but actually on the ground it's really run with money through that's funded through local government. So I would bring those two closer together and in places where they work closer together it really it really does work yes then the next big thing i would do i'd have a real push on recruitment because we're losing ground on recruit recruitment 90 nurses uh, a day are leaving the nhs we're not making them up for the first time uh, that i can remember all of the nurse training places at university have not been taken up this year. That's very worrying. If that continues, you know, if, if nursing becomes starts to become an unpopular mm. career, then that's really difficult. I've been told so, one of the problems there, Roy, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that nursing has now become a kind of an academic qualification which has discouraged a lot of ordinary people from going into it because they fear that it might be a bit too academic for them rather than it being a sort of vocational subject that you study. It's a really interesting argument, you know, that you've, you've put your finger right on it. The, the argument runs on both sides. The, but one, one side of the argument says, look, 
Even the girl in the supermarket on the cash desk these days has got a degree. Nurses should be at least as well qualified as everybody else. Nursing is a much more technical profession than it's ever been. We need highly educated, well-trained nurses. All the evidence is the better the nurses are trained, the better the outcomes for patients. Makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, you're quite right. There are a lot of people who aren't academic or don't mature later and, and more able to cope with academia. And to try and get around that, there are now some entry levels for people without the degree to come in, work on the wards, and get a degree over a longer period. But there's been a very slow take-up uh, with that. The, you, we have to accept the fact there's a strong sense of vocation in coming into nursing. It's not for everybody. No. In fact, one in five nurses who go into training, one in five drop out because they get on the ward and see what it's actually all about, and they, they just can't cope with it. I mean, it doesn't make them bad people. It's no. just they can't cope with... Listen, I wouldn't want to do it. Ward. I wouldn't want but, to do it. You know, and I'm reasonably... I mean, I've got four children. I've, I've seen some pretty horrible things. You know, I was at all of their births, you know. Yeah. Um, but I would not want to be a nurse. I'm sorry. No, I wouldn't want to be a midwife, would you, really? No, not really, no. <laughs> Let's not go there. You've already made me remember things I thought I'd forgotten. <laughs> but, you know, you're already making a lot of sense, Roy. Why is it it's so difficult to get this kind of common sense out of politicians? You know, they need to stop using it as a football. They need to stop beating each other over the head with the figures and the statistics and the targets. And it seems to me the targets have driven everything even into more of a kind of ellipsis in a way. You know, it's even harder to get at the truth because they hide behind all these figures. Well, they're very defensive. That's that's the difficulty. I mean, yeah. there, there are some people that they say, why don't we decouple the NHS from the political infrastructure yeah. and run it independent, like, for example, the Bank of England, so that, you know, there's a Bank of England Monetary Committee responsible to Parliament for inflation and the fiscal side of the economy, but they're, they're separate and the Chancellor of the Exchequer has no power over them. Well, we could do the same kind of thing uh, with uh, the NHS. We could decouple it into some kind of a new model where it wasn't so uh, immediately uh, interferable, if there is such a word, but you know what I mean, um, by the politicians. There's two problems with that. One is, of course, it's taxpayers' money. And at the end of the day, the money is voted through Parliament to the NHS, and so there has to be a minister responsible. And if there's a minister responsible, there has to be questions on a Wednesday, and then he gets it in the neck for everything that goes wrong. Yeah. And on the other hand, of course, if people do come to grief with the NHS or they're waiting a long time for a hip operation or all the rest of it, they, what are they going to do? They're going to get a hold of their MP and say, look, you know, I've been waiting you know, 18 years for a hip operation or something. Are you going to sort this lot out? And so the MPs rightly then want to question the ministers. So there is, I think, really a, a, an inextricable connection between the politics and the people and the service. But I think it's not beyond the will of man to come up with some kind of mechanism that distances itself from the actual day-to-day -day interference of politicians. No, exactly right. And as if by magic, Roy, just stay with you for a second. Jeremy Corbyn is making a speech in London right now uh, behind the banner, It's Time for Real Change. Guess what he's talking about? Is he talking about the NHS? I've got him up on my screen here now. Yeah, but he says, this election is a once-in-a-generation yeah. Oh, yeah, don't take him let's have, let's, have, let's have a listen to him. Is that... Is that asking too much? Asking too much to secure homes that families can afford, rents that don't break the bank, and an end to the disgrace and indignity of rough sleeping in every city of this country. 
Poor old Jeremy Corbyn, of course, seems to forget that a lot of the cities of this country where the rough sleeping happen are run by mayors who are from the Labour Party. Yeah, and it is interesting, you know, when um, when Labour were in power, Gordon Brown was the, was the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Yeah. He appointed a rough sleeping czar, and they got rough sleeping down to almost nothing. Right. But, you know, I was in London yesterday, and you lose count of the... Of the oh, it's awful. ...trivelled souls that are freezing in doorways. Yeah. You think, God, you know, what can I do? You you empty your pockets of change, and you've done no good, have you? you know, no. What, well, there's no point. I mean, Sadiq Khan's, I'm afraid, too busy commentating and making sure that he's campaigning on behalf of remaining in the European Union to actually bother about what's happening on the streets of London, where people yeah, are getting I... stabbed on a daily basis and dying on the streets because they haven't got anywhere to live. I had a very interesting meeting the day before yesterday with the Director General of the Red Cross here. And uh, they do tremendous work in yes. hospitals. And I was there primarily talking about how they're helping to get people home. But I said to him, you know what, you really, the Red Cross, the big job for them is why can't we make homelessness uh, uh, history? Why can't we end it? You make homelessness history, yeah. why can't we end it? Uh, and, you know, they, they said, they're saying, you know, you know what, we're looking at to see what we can do. Because there are so many, I mean, so many people now, you can't walk around London without coming across someone who's in a bundle of rags sitting in the doorway asking you for money. I know. And it's, it's a disgrace. It really is. It really is. One final question to you, because I know we've got to run. Uh, James has tweeted me. He says, I've worked in the US health system. They have a very effective approach that's missing in the NHS, a complete separation of the business side and the healthcare side. It works. I've got some experience with the American system, and he's right about that. You know, there are many things wrong with it. Um, however, there is a very good separation of the money and the care. Yes, and it's because it's an insurance-based system, yeah. and that's at the heart of the fear and all the aggravation there is now talking about is the NHS going to be on the table with some kind of trade deal and all the rest of it. Look, I've travelled the world talking about health systems and studying health systems. I can say the system that we have here is, I think, in my judgment anyway, the best in the world. It's where we all put a few quid in the tin, and if we need it, it's there for us, and if it's not, well, it's there for somebody else. That's called socialised medicine, socialised care, it works. Insurance-based systems, they suck a hell of a lot of money out in administrative costs, and frankly, I don't think it's as good. And the problem of, as well in America is, is driven by the law, uh, the legal problems and the lawyers that get involved as well. But we'll talk about another time, Roy, because I can be sure that this subject will not go away. Uh, we've got Jeremy Corbyn speaking. Uh, he has been talking, of course, about the healthcare system. Uh, he thinks the Tories want to kill it off. He's going to keep pushing that particular mantra. I think it's wrong to do. I'd like to hear from you. I want your stories on the NHS as well, particularly if you work in it, because lots of it is great. Marvellous parts of it run very, very well, but lots of it isn't great, and lots of it is inefficient, uh, slow, and completely ineffective in treating people who are suffering, and that is wrong, in my view. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Let's take some more calls right here on Talk Radio, which is, of course, your election station. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Psycho killer. Four 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 nine nine one thousand. You're listening to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio, your election station. We're going to bring you uh, every single coffin spit from the election campaign. Uh, of course, Jeremy Corbyn out and about today. Uh, no doubt we will find out precisely what the Labour Party's policy is going to be on Brexit. Uh, at the moment, he seems to only want to talk about uh, the NHS. Uh, but basically, uh, he also wants to talk about why, apparently, uh, it's going to be cold and dark in December. Really? How remarkable is that? Breaking news. Jeremy Corbyn says it's going to be cold and dark in December. Uh, it's Halloween now. It's going to be frightening later on. Uh, don't worry about that. Let's talk to John, who's in Dorset. Hello, John. Good morning, Mike. Good How morning. Are you? Very well indeed. What can I do for you? Yeah, I was just saying to your uh, researcher. Yeah. I retired about seven years ago after 48 years in nursing, both civilian and army. Okay. And one of the best parts of my time professionally was in 2003, I worked as a registered nurse in a level one trauma centre in North Carolina. Okay. In a place called Greenville. Right. And they can run a hospital. When I left the hospital I was working with to work in the States, I was working in a particular room. It was the isolation room. There was a bit of mould on the ceiling tile. Right. The lino was cracked and the paint was peeling. I came back three years later and nothing had changed. Wow. And was, and it, a particular, was it a particularly old hospital? No. It, 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 well, it was. It was... Um, it was called Plymouth General, but, okay. but, uh, but having said that, where I worked in the States, everything was stripped and cleaned in intensive care. Every month, they took a room out of circulation, they cleaned the floor, they repainted and everything. Mm. But the point was that all the staff there, the measure that we had was patient satisfaction, because if the patients aren't satisfied, they don't bring in the money, and right. they don't bring in the money your raison d'etre was gone. Yes. And the staff used to get a bonus. And that was purely on the patient sort of feedback. And it started at the top. And when you look at the NHS, you see these managers on salaries twice that of the Prime Minister. Yeah. And they do the most awful things and they walk away from it. And then you see them on the circuit popping up somewhere else. My wife was working as a PA to one of the vice presidents and she came home and she said, you'll never believe it. She said... The chief exec just sacked the director of finance. Right. And apparently this guy had had two warnings that, you know, the budget was not doing as it should. And I saw the chief exec go in his office, shake his then he left the building. The new director had already been headhunted. He came in in the afternoon. He put an email out to all his staff saying there will be a meeting for all staff after work at five o'clock. Anybody not present will be deemed to have terminated their contract. And... It was so nice to do healthcare where people were working, supporting the people on the front line. Doctors, nurses, you needed equipment, yes. you got equipment. And yeah. I bet you didn't run out of anything either. 
No, we had what they, the, the equivalent of Kanban. And when I used to go to work, you know, half past six in the morning, yeah. the big trucks would roll in and you'd see them, and that was what we had for the next 48 hours. Mm. And what do you and, think could be done to make the NHS run like that? Is it just too top-heavy, do you think? Well, it's, it's interesting. Just before I retired, I was a union rep. Mm. And this hospital in Plymouth, we had 5,200 staff. 25% of them were admin and clerical and management. Yeah. And that's ridiculous. It is. And why do they I, need all those people? Well, I don't know. You see, in America, that basically the only thing hospitals are accountable for is the federal budget. That's if you're a... You know, you're providing Medicare and Medicaid and you're providing trauma services, which we were. Right. That carries federal funding. And the thing is that the administrators there, all they're concerned about is their own organisation and meeting the federal requirements for providing emergency and Medicare and Medicaid. Mm. Here, half the people in management and that are submitting returns to the administration, to the government. Yeah. And, and you've got people bogged down with paperwork which is an administration and that basically if we streamlined our management we don't need 25 percent of our resources directed towards admin and clerical and i would imagine if you look at the establishment returns of most major hospital organizations organizations you will find that the biggest proportion of staffing uh, and that financial allocation goes towards management and admin and clerical yeah no, I think you're absolutely right. John, what a great call. Thank you so much. John, with experience not only of this uh, healthcare system, but also one of them uh, in the United States of America, in North Carolina, a place I know quite well as well. Let's talk to Sarah, uh, who's a former nurse as well. Sarah, very good morning to you. Uh, hello, good morning. Good morning. Um, I, I rang up because um, I qualified in uh, early 2000 and okay. worked till 2013 in central London. Mm. And um, I, I actually was um, working mainly under a Labour government Okay. And then, of course, the Conservatives got in after the crash, etc. Yeah. And I felt that the uh, cuts under Labour were, were just as bad, in fact, worse mm. during the period I was working. The staff shortages were acute for a variety of reasons to do with um, the, the cost of PFI contracts sometimes yeah. and, 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 and other reasons. And the real central problem is the micromanagement of the NHS, and I did agree with your last caller about mm. the need to support frontline staff because frontline staff actually do run it. Yes, and, and they should. I mean, they should run it. They, you know, we should be absolutely. making medical medical decisions based upon medical advice, not financial absolutely. advice. And one of the most stressful situations that people are in, especially as a nurse, because um, to be frank, doctors aren't always that easy to work with, mm. is um, a huge amount of responsibility w without power. And that's a, a massive problem, uh, especially when you add the micromanagement of people who really don't know what they're talking about. Um, in terms of private hospitals, which I've worked in as well, um, I think all medicine is, is more or less international. Yeah. The staff shortages are more or less international as well. And in private hospitals, they want to make money, and in um, the NHS, they want to save it. Yeah. In other words, money is a key issue in both. Um, how it works with privatised services varies because some of them are good and some of them are not. Sure. Um, and it would depend very much. I mean, take care homes, for example, all the disasters that have come from them. 
Um, it depends very much on the contracts these people are given. Yes, and unfortunately, and, uh, again, the public sector gives out contracts to people which they would never get in a month of Sundays from a private organisation. Sarah, another great call. Thank you very much indeed. Vicky uh, is in Brighton. Hi, Vicky. Hello, Mike. Good morning to you. Good yeah, morning. Just a quick uh, comment to make and yeah. suggestion. All this individual trust buying of product is absolutely ridiculous. I'm talking about basic stuff, nothing to do with medical. And my example is Tate Loo Rolls. Right. Okay? All these trusts buy loo rolls, and I understand the individual price for six loo rolls varies enormously. Why on earth isn't it bought centrally? You do a contract with, say, Tesco or Asda or one of the big uh, supermarket chains. They have warehousing, they have distribution all over the country three or four times a week. All the major supermarkets, cities, towns, whatever, they deliver. And the unit cost would absolutely plummet. Yes. An individual trust. And there's loads of basic stuff like that, tissues, whatever. I think Corbyn would like us to build state kind of loo rolls. Yes, oh, he would, yeah, uh, and employ loads of people from Islington and Hackney to work in them, you know, as commissars of the toilet roll department. Exactly. But, I mean, if you've got the supermarkets there, they buy in enormous bulk themselves for selling in their own outlets. And why why on earth does the government pay more for stuff than we do? You know, they should be paying a lot less. It's just crazy. Mm. And, of course, at the same time, you'd have the joy of getting rid of a lot of these admin staff in these trusts whose probably, you know, whole raison d'etre in life is to buy loo rolls and toilet paper, you know, and, and tissues. Yeah. It's just, you know... If and then you haven't got the, the whole kind of pension ethos you've got to worry about because you're cutting down on the admin side. Right. And, in fact, using that money on the medical side... I mean, listen, Vicky, I'm afraid I'm going to have to award you the common sense call of the day. You know, there's so much of it out there that we can access. Why can the government not access any common sense? Why can the politicians not actually have any common sense? How is it possible to have 650 idiots in a palace of Westminster, none of whom have any common sense? What is going on? Uh, we are, of course, uh, your election station here at Talk Radio. We will bring you much more common sense in the next hour. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, if you haven't heard Howard Hughes at the weekend hosting The Unexplained on Talk Radio, then you are very much missing out. You should do so, uh, and you should do so this weekend. Let's talk to him now. Howard, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Mike, what a pleasure. And a privilege to be listen, on your show. Listen, welcome to The Independent Republic. It's, it's been uh, ridiculously uh, remiss of us not to have got you on earlier, to be honest. But anyway... <laughs> Here we are. Uh, Halloween is probably uh, one of those times of the year when sensible people dread, really. I mean, I've, I've rather stupidly arranged to go out tonight because I'd forgotten it was going to be Halloween. Um, and it's going to be, you know, the, the streets and the tube are going to be filled with revellers dressed in all sorts of ridiculous outfits. Um, but the one thing I do like about Halloween is, is sort of telling ghost stories to children. I quite like that. Yeah, I mean, that is a fact, and that's what it's become, really. And I think at the moment, I think there is, in 2019, I think, personally, that there is, from what I've seen, a unique aspect to Halloween, Mike, and that is, I think we are seeing probably more events, and I was checking out just uh, a couple of minutes ago, mm. the, the number of parties and even seances that are being held oh, really? up and down the country, and in London, Scotland, various other places, people are going to haunted venues, and at midnight, they're going to be doing seances and that kind of thing. And I think the reason for this, I think the reason for the uptick in interest in it this year is that people, and you know, your show reflects this, are frustrated and sick and tired 
and rather bored with Brexit and politics. Yes. So anything that affords them, and isn't it ironic that, you know, the date is the 31st of October, well, we know what that should have been. Yes. But, you know, 31st of October is now going to afford them an escape from the thing that we were going to be immersed in on this day, October 31st. And also, if you were going to have a party to celebrate leaving the European Union, you just turn it immediately into a Halloween party, I suppose, and tell people exactly. to dress up. I mean, yeah, I look, come from a very odd, uh, sort of, not odd, but I mean, for some people, odd background, because my parents were both Scottish, right? When I was a child, Halloween wasn't really a thing in London. Um, and I was one of the few kids who would go into school the day after Halloween and tell them about ducking for apples and, and uh, trying to uh, eat a, um, um, a, a scone that was hanging from the, uh, from the ceiling covered in syrup, you know, and we'd walk around trick-or-treating and, and uh, guising, as they call it in Scotland. But nobody else really did it. And, and people in school with me when I was about seven or eight were like, we don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, there is, it always seemed to me, because you know that I'm originally a scouser yes. and spent my first 20 years in Liverpool, always seemed to me that a lot of the Scottish traditions washed down to, to the north of England, yes. and Liverpool in particular, because there's a Scottish influence there. So we did, we called it duck apple. Right. Uh, and that would always involve my wonderful grandmother who lived on a cobbled street in Waterloo in Liverpool, bringing out the washing up bowl, putting it on the floor, filling it with water, bunging apples in it, and then we put our hands behind our back, my sister Beryl yes. and I, and we bobbed for apples. I mean, it was simple fun. But those things, they don't appear to have done so much. And I think they had a different name for it, like many things. Mm. Um, in the south of England, like in Scotland and in Liverpool, uh, New Year's time is first footing. Yes. Now, down south, even today, most people haven't even heard of first footing. No, no, they don't know what it is. And, of course, now it would probably be outlawed by the PC brigade because you have to have a, you have to have a tall, so. dark stranger carrying a lump of coal, which is probably against all manner of new rules of uh, etiquette or whatever. But the other thing as well uh, is that, you know, I, I, my, part of my family is also American. And, of course, in America, it was always a massive thing. And it's become now very Americanized over here, hasn't it, where kids are going around trick-or-treating, knocking on doors, throwing eggs at other people... And and generally making a nuisance of themselves. I mean, in America, it used to be, I think, I'm right in saying, one of the most violent nights in the history of any one year because there'd be loads of people shot on Halloween. Yes, I mean, that is a fact. And in America, it was always, uh, what's that great British word, a rumbustuous yes. night uh, for everybody. Now, people tend to say, and it depends on which side of the argument you're on, of course, but tend to say that uh, they blame the Americans for trick-or-treat. And I actually referenced that on my show last Sunday night. And I got an email, and I haven't got it here with me, but from a, a listener here in the UK, pointing out that trick-or-treat as a tradition, and he gave me chapter and verse on it, originated here, and then went there, and we forgot about it. Really? And it came back. And ah. it came back in the 80s. People think that we've been doing trick-or-treating forever. Yeah. Now, when I was a kid, I bet, hey, back in the 70s, as they say, but yeah. when I was a kid back then, we didn't do trick-or-treat. Trick-or-treat started or restarted, certainly when I was living, uh, probably 1982, yeah. 83 or so. And it had come back here from America. And it's kind of depressing to me to walk into one of these big supermarkets, as I did the other day, and there's a whole section, you know, with Halloween clothes, with bags and bags and bags of sweets that you can give out. I'm, you know, I kind of preferred it when, um, when I was a kid. We would literally we would just go around to the next-door neighbour's house because our parents, being Scottish, thought that was what we should do. But we didn't go knocking on everybody's door because they probably wouldn't have known what we were doing. Yeah, and that, but you highlight another point here, Mike, that I think it's become a commercial opportunity like so many of these things. And its actual meaning, which I had to look up again for, for my show last week, you know, its actual meaning and origins, I think, have been forgotten by people. It's just become a thing. When I was a kid... 31st was the duck apple, but that to me meant something else. Mm. It was under a week to being able to let the fireworks Yes. Off. So it was a point in the calendar.
Yes, absolutely right. And what about those kind of enduring stories? Because I wonder sometimes as well with, with this uh, uh, sort of madness in the political world that you referred to that people quite like to hang on to things. And I think part of the reason we've got such a strange kind of dichotomy of views in this country is because people want to be part of either relieve or remain. They feel at home if there's a group around them, you know, because they're not really religious anymore. But it's become kind of religious. Is there a still um, a thirst for for sort of ghost stories, the unexplained, you know, UFOs, people spotting things? Oh, God, yes. I mean, look, any day of the week now, you've only got to look at the papers, stuff that would have been scoffed at by journalists of the like, uh, you know, of whom that you and I trained with. Yes. Uh, used to scoff and laugh at these things, say these people were nuts. These days, uh, tabloid newspapers and other outlets of the media take it a little more seriously and are willing to listen to people. And the reason for this is that everybody these days is a citizen journalist. Yeah. Everybody has a phone. Everybody's able to record images. Yesterday, I, only yesterday, just one typical day, I was emailed two images that listeners to my show had uh, taken. One was um, an orb, a ball of light, apparently um, you know, pirouetting around a fireplace. It didn't appear to be an artifact of the camera. But what do I know? I think there is tremendous interest, but I'm going to make myself very unpopular here on Halloween when I say I'm not really the world's biggest fan of Halloween. If you look back historically, there isn't really an uptick in weirdness, strange events, even violent events mm. on Halloween. You can go back through history, and yes, you can see... I mean, I looked at some of them this morning... Um, October 31st, 1981, couple murdered in their home in Manhattan. Uh, they were shot like an execution house was ransacked. Happened on October the 31st. Uh, very sad, very tragic, maybe coincidence. Uh, going back through history, lists of things that happened on Halloween even include the election of the dictator in Italy, Mussolini, <laughs> apparently that happened. <laughs> well, on that this was quite day, frightening, I suppose. Which was, well, it turned out to be very scary yeah. for, for the world, uh, you know, as we know. Uh, then there's another story from 2005 on another one of these lists of the 10 most scary things that happened on Halloween. Uh, when locals in Frederica, Delaware, most of these things come from America, yeah. saw a body hanging from a tree in Halloween 2005, they assumed it was a decoration. It was only later that they discovered it was the real-life body of a woman. You see, the way you tell these stories has already given me the spooks. It's great. You know, I mean, it's fantastic, isn't it? Because... Oh, no, look, there was a guy who could beat even me, and sadly, he's not very well at the moment, and he was the expert at this man, you may have heard of him, the Reverend Lionel Fanthorpe. Yes. Who sounded, I always thought... Like an absolute doppelganger for Hagrid. Yes. Because every time he'd say, well, Howard, I'm glad you... He never had a question asked of him by mm. me that he was never glad to hear, if you know what I'm saying. Right. Double negative. But, Absolutely. You know, he'd always be pleased to say, Howard, I'm really pleased that you asked me this question yes. because I experienced something similar only myself last week. Do you know, one of, one of the things that, that frightened me the most, I suppose I would say, and it wasn't a movie, I had a, a, a former brother-in-law who wrote a book once about Ed and Lorraine Warren, who mm. are the demonologists of Connecticut, basically, the people who were involved in the Amityville Horror, um, the, the, the devil in Connecticut, all of that. And these people had actually gone to the house in Amityville in Long Island and exercised it. And yeah. uh, when I listened to him telling me what they told him, and when I read the book as well, I mean, it literally scared the bejesus out of me. And I'm not somebody who believes in all that stuff. But, you know, it, I find it fascinating that so many people have stories to tell which are not dis dismissible, you know, which are genuine and which they absolutely so strongly believe in that you kind of think, well, there must be something to it. Well, if you want to scare yourself witless tonight... And I frequently do this just uh, for reference, really, as a mm. reference point for what I do. There was a man in New York called uh, Father Malachi Martin, a uh -huh. real Irish Catholic yes. priest. 
Uh, Malachi Martin, they made a movie about him. He was so famous. He was always on the radio in America, and sadly, he died before I got the chance to interview him. But mm. I have interviewed his biographer, and I know a, a certain amount about him. And he would talk very authoritatively on the fact that evil, he would say, and, you know, make no doubt, have no doubt, Howard, Satan is here. Satan is real. The devil is with, mm. you know, the right. devil is with us all the time. You listen to some of his stories, and you will be left believing. I think one of the things that, you know, I try and be journalistic about the unexplained, and I try and be balanced, but I hear stories from time to time that I cannot as far as I plumb the depths of my own scientific knowledge, such as that is or whatever, I simply can't explain. Yeah. You know, I believe, as the old saying goes, there are, there's more to heaven and earth you know, than we can be aware in this three-dimensional universe that we inhabit. And yeah. that doesn't mean that I'm away with the fairies or mad. No. It just means that I have an open mind. Oh, that, exactly right. I mean, when I used to do the overnight show on Talk Sport, a guy rang in once from a truck and said that he was being followed um, by this weird light. And I, I said to him, just keep, you know, calling us up, keep ringing us, because he was getting more and more scared as he was driving. And the light was getting closer and closer. And we arranged to have him call up sort of every 20 minutes. Finally, after the, the, the next 20 minutes passed, he, he, he didn't answer his phone. The line went dead, and oh, we never gee. got him back again. Gee. Well, can I just, if that person is still with us, um, can I just make an appeal, 03444991000, between the hours of, uh, of 10pm and 1am yeah. Sunday night? Listen, it's been a pleasure, Howard. Thank you very much indeed. How, happy <laughs> Halloween to you. Howard Hughes. Um, you know, if you want to tell us a ghost story, you can. I mean, we haven't got a lot of time left, but, you know, it makes a change from Brexit, doesn't it? Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.